In our world, there is magic in the darkness. Sorcery and incantations which bring us closer to the essence of the night. Come enter our black magic shop. Where we will conjure up tales to frighten and disturb. This journey will be spellbinding. Brace yourself for the No Sleep Podcast. Welcome, visitors, to the No Sleep Magic Shop. I'm your proprietor, David Cummings. This week, we conjure spells for you about the dark fantasies we escape to. It's a pleasure to welcome a new voice actor to our team, Joe Sheary. Joe is a highly trained British actor with a compelling stage and screen presence. He's also a dynamic live presenter. He has worked on a multitude of projects from British sitcoms to the film version of the Royal Shakespeare Company's rendition of The Tempest. We're thrilled Joe is sharing his talents with us. Welcome to the team, Joe. So, the whole team is ready, and it's time. Now, close your eyes and embrace the magic. Tales. We share them. And by we, I don't mean the podcast, but we as a species, humanity. Storytelling is the lifeblood of our culture. It existed since human life began. And so, during the millennia, we accrued quite a number of tales that have been shared and reshared, replayed and recounted. Some of these are horror tales. Are they true? Did they happen to you or the cousin of a friend of a co-worker? Can we trace back their origins? Was there ever a hook-handed man who latched onto a horny teen couple's car? Is there really a malevolent presence under that bridge? Can humans lick, too? One such tale that's been told in whispers over the last eight years is an internet urban legend so infamous that it's kept people up at night trying to find out if it was true. You may have heard it. It goes like this. In June of 1972, a woman appeared in Cedar sinai Hospital in nothing but a white, blood-covered gown. Now this, in itself, should not be too surprising, as people often have accidents nearby and come to the nearest hospital for medical attention. But there were two things that caused people who saw her to vomit and flee in terror. The first being that she wasn't exactly human. She resembled something close to a mannequin, but had the dexterity and fluidity of a normal human being. Her face was as flawless as a mannequin's, devoid of eyebrows and smeared in makeup. She had a kitten clenched in between her teeth, her jaws clamped so unnaturally tightly around it to the point where no teeth could be seen. The blood was still squirting out over her gown and onto the floor. She then pulled it out of her mouth, tossed it aside, and collapsed. 
From the moment she stepped through the entrance to when she was taken to a hospital room and cleaned up before being prepped for sedation, she was completely calm, expressionless, and motionless. The doctors thought it best to restrain her until the authorities could arrive, and she did not protest. They were unable to get any kind of response from her, and most staff members felt too uncomfortable to look directly at her for more than a few seconds. But the second the staff tried to sedate her, she fought back with extreme force. Two members of staff had to hold her down as her body rose up on the bed with that same blank expression. She turned her emotionless eyes towards the male doctor and did something unusual. She smiled. As she did, the female doctor screamed and let go out of shock. In the woman's mouth were not human teeth, but long, sharp spikes. Too long for her mouth to close fully without causing any damage. A male doctor stared back at her for a moment before asking, What in the hell are you? She cracked her neck down to her shoulder to observe him, still smiling. There was a long pause. The security had been alerted and could be heard coming down the hallway. As she heard them, she darted forward, sinking her teeth into the front of his throat, ripping out his jugular and letting him fall to the floor, gasping for air as he choked on his own blood. She stood up and leaned over him, her face coming dangerously close to his as the life faded from his eyes. She leaned closer and whispered in his ear, The doctor's eyes filled with fear as he watched her calmly walk away to greet the security men. His last ever sight would be watching her feast on them one by one. The female doctor who survived the incident named her the Expressionless. There was never a sighting of her again. That was an official performance of The Expressionless, written by author T.J. Lee. It's terrified many. It's left people wondering whether it's real. It even has a Snopes page. But in this next tale, also shared with us by author T.J. Lee, we finally get to discover the inspiration behind the legend, the facts behind the fiction, the truth behind The Expressionless. Performing this tale are Atticus Jackson, Aaron Lillis, Mike Delgadio, Nicole Doolin, and David Alt. So find out what young Theodore experienced when he came to play at Grandma's in Kaku Renbo. Grandma Effie's favorite game was hide-and-seek. The rules were always the same. I was the hider, and she was the seeker. 
Let me start off by simply saying my grandmother was an intensely private woman. I have never encountered another human being in my near 30 years on this spinning sphere of minerals, noise, and life that could even come close to the truly jarring way that woman made me feel. Do you ever recall the first time you encountered something so profoundly forbidden? That moment when you're usually very young and you stumble across Christmas presents you were never meant to see before the holidays, or the first time you saw roadkill on a journey home. Usually your entire body undergoes a sensation akin to one thing. Danger. Your limbs somehow feeling heavier, stronger, more tempered to pounce in the event you were discovered. It's almost like a superpower but one designed to help you run. This is the folly of danger. The folly of that first time you encounter something forbidden. It has a habit of giving you the opposite effect. If you were being screamed by every cell in your body to take flight, the one dissenting voice, and subsequently, the one that matters most, would be that of your brain. It would be encouraging you urging you to stay and explore the depths of this newfound treasure trove of knowledge, something you know at such a young age is never meant to be delved into, poked, prodded, or discussed. For me, the age was nine. The place was my grandparents' house. The thing? That was my grandma's ritual. I made the critical mistake of interrupting it. The first time I stumbled across her ritual was entirely by accident. My mother had brought me to Grandma Effie's for an afternoon tea one summer in the late 90s. I don't recall what it was, but something had led my mom away from the house, electing to leave me with Grandma for a couple hours while she took care of things. From the moment the oak door groaned shut behind her with a final thump, it felt like the house I'd become intimately familiar with as a toddler was suddenly foreign and foreboding beyond comprehension. Of course, you can chalk that up entirely to being a child separated from his mother and just feeling vulnerable. But it was more than that. It was the equivalence of having your blanket ripped from your sheets in the dead of night. The safety net of your world suddenly dissipating revealing an unknown void that could hold any number of dangerous things. When that door closed and my grandmother smiled down at me, pearly whites bared and eyes alight with interest while excitedly telling me we were going to play hide-and-seek, I knew that safety was gone. Grandma Effie was a reclusive woman. She hadn't talked to her neighbors or anyone really for that matter since she took an extended trip away before I was born. Once upon a time, I'm told, she was a kind, intelligent, and expressive woman, full of life and zest. On her return, however, she would often show virtually no emotion to anyone who came her way, instead displaying a cold indifference that warned of something almost offensive. As time progressed, any remaining warmth in the woman leaked away, replaced by an ice-cold persona that kept all at a distance, with only flickers of her goodwill resurfacing in her later years. 
So you can imagine my confusion, even at that small age, when Grandma Effie placed her hands on my shoulders as we watched my mom go, knelt down to smile at me when the door was shut, and told me to find the best hiding place I could. Confused but eager to play, as any nine-year-old would be, The Victorian house I was used to seemed a far cry from the imposing structure I was exploring now. What used to be a kaleidoscope of beautiful colors now appeared piercing and menacing, as if crimson and pure white were conspiring to stab me in the back the moment I turned the corner, shying away from their adornments. The family portraits, once seeming comforting and endlessly full of emotions, almost appeared vacant lifeless, and devoid of all things pure. I couldn't even say their eyes stared at me as I walked past. It was the same cold indifference my grandma usually displayed, but amplified. As I climbed the staircase to the third floor, I noticed a closet that was almost perfectly blended with the walls, separated by a spare bedroom on the left and grandma's taxidermy workshop on the right. If there was one thing that made her happy... It was taxidermy. She once found some squirrels in her front garden, cavorting by the oak tree, and elected to poison them instead of befriending them. The look of adulation on her face when she presented me with one as a Christmas gift, contrasting with the primal terror on the unfortunate squirrel's face, is something permanently etched into my memory. She always promised to show me the workshop, but up to this point had never found what she called an appropriate time to do so. The closet, an alluring and natural choice to hide in for any ambitious hide-and-seeker, was promptly made priority since the taxidermy office was locked tight. Six, seven, eight. I began tiptoeing towards the closet, her graveled accent echoing along the hall. Even two floors up, her tones carried through the husk of the house, bouncing off of every wall and urging me to hide before her count was up. I knew she'd begin ascending the stairs soon. Competition and an unusual sense of panic urging me on. I slipped inside. Nine. Ten. Eleven. A faint clinking sound now complimenting the counting was momentarily off-putting, but with it being the afternoon, I figured she was making lunch. Hoping for a rice ball, I peered through the slits in the closet to see if I could catch a smell of the ingredients, making a feeble attempt at guessing the food. The sound caused my eyes to widen, and sweat began pouring down my brow. Something resembling my grandma was ascending the stairs, with an intent so fierce I could physically feel it from where I was hidden. At the time, I didn't understand what I was looking at. To be honest, I still don't know, but I'm sure many of you hearing this will. The first thing that caught my eye was the wig. It was pure black and perfectly kept, not a single hair out of place or discolored. Grandma's normal hair was pepper gray, frayed, and usually a little messy. Next, I saw her outfit, a pure white gown with nothing on her feet. Wasn't she cold? Where were her khakis and sweater? I couldn't understand the unusual change in outfit, and at the time, my child mind thought she was playing dress-up. 
But as she turned towards the hall, I saw her face. I saw something that convinced my younger self that this wasn't my grandma. But as an adult, reminds me that person is no longer with us. Her eyebrows were gone. Her eyes were devoid of emotion and her face was blank. No muscle twitched, no blemish or movement save for the smallest whisper. In a phrase, she was expressionless. The story I put out into the world in 2012 was based on her. The photo? No, but it was the closest thing I could find that connected me to that emotion I felt when I looked at her. Something so unnatural and inhuman that every fiber of my being screamed to look away, to run, to defend myself. That feeling of stumbling over something forbidden etched its way into my soul and latched onto my ribcage, daring my heart to beat louder so she would find me quicker. Hand placed over my mouth and sweat dripping from my head, I couldn't look away as she dragged herself across the hallway, eyes fixed on something out of my view. As she got closer, I could hear what she was saying, and it was enough to finally tear me away from the door and towards the back of the room, to anywhere obscured and safe. I am God. They are the lambs. I took my hands away from my mouth and waited until I was certain she had gone. With some bravery and a lot of stupidity, I began knocking against the walls, knowing I couldn't just go out of the closet door, but desperate to have a larger safe haven. Feeling my surroundings and realizing the wall next to me was hollow, I began knocking against it harder, praying that she wouldn't hear, it eventually gave way to a small hole that I eagerly pulled apart as I stepped into the office. The room was crimson red and black. Shelves adorned the walls from the highest points down to my chest. Each one of them was filled with different kinds of taxidermied animals. Some were the squirrels I mentioned earlier, but others were cats some birds, and even a handful of dogs. Every single one of them was twisted into unnatural positions, limbs split and contorted into horrific shapes as every face stared into the void, their faces as absent of emotion and life as whatever was wearing my grandma's skin outside. The lack of terror, pain, and any connective emotion was more horrifying than my mind knew what to do with. I knew better than to scream, but my eyes widened and I whimpered. I wanted to look away. I needed to look away. I began scanning this nightmarish room. It seemed almost preferable to what was out there for anything that could provide respite. I was just a child who wanted to scream, cry, and throw up. But there was an instinctual desire in me to hide, and that somehow superseded all other things. My eyes darted to the far corner and saw a groove in the wall that didn't match the rest of the wallpaper. With some inspection and a slight push, it gave way to a crawl space that led to a smaller room. I was confused, as there was nothing next to this but drywall. There was no time for hesitation. Taking a deep breath... I ventured in and prayed that it was better than this. 
When I emerged, the room was bright, as if there were halogen bulbs. But after my eyes adjusted, I realized it was the wallpaper. It was a pure white from corner to corner. The floor, a white marble. There wasn't a single dirty spot to be seen. It was beyond meticulous. Smaller than the room I was just in, it contained a study desk, some objects and a few books adorning it with one open at its center. In the far corner, an old oak cupboard lay on its back, chains wrapping it twice over to create a straitjacket of metal, the wood worn and peeling where it had been strained against. Immediately, I was drawn to the desk and the books. I'd hoped there would be a window or another door to find a way out of, but it was sealed off completely. Resigning myself to being here until my mom got back, I sat down and looked over what was in front of me. Twenty years on, I don't recall much of what was there. Partly because my mind tends to focus on the more horrifying things that stick out from that day. Also because my Japanese is poor now, and was even poorer then, given that my grandma and cousin were the only ones who tried to teach katakana to me. But what I do remember are the photos. Dozens of pictures of military men and women standing proudly in front of a huge complex, people being herded into the gaping maws of this unforgiving structure. Photos of wholesome encounters between officers intermixed with photos of what they were doing to the people there. Vivisections, burnings, things a child should never see. But it was the last two photos that began to paint the picture for me. In the first was a terrified Japanese woman in her early 20s being held down by two nurses as a drill was being pushed into the base of her skull. Her head had been shaved and she looked malnourished. Even though the photo was black and white, I could make out bruises on her face where she had been beaten, blood trickling down the side of her head. In the second was the same situation, but the woman was no longer resisting. Her face was devoid of all emotion. She was completely submissive. The orderlies were still holding her down with force, but there appeared to be zero resistance. She looked almost vacant from her body. There was a date on each photo, the first reading 1947, and the second 1949. I didn't want to think about the horror this person had faced over a two-year period in order to become something so disconnected from reality, but I wanted to keep exploring, so I tried to push it from my mind and carried on, reaching for the heavily bound book at the back of the table. It had no title, only an inscription that, even as an adult, I cannot replicate, despite many attempts. It was engraved into the center of a moss-green book with the face of a sculpted Greek god in the background staring at me. Theodore, where are you? Grandma is tired now and Mom is here. Come on out. You win. My eyes snapped away. Grandma sounded gravelly again, and for whatever reason I believed her. I suddenly felt exhausted and at ease an almost intoxicating cocktail of emotions flowing over me. I glanced once more at the book 
and over to the chained-up cupboard before crawling back through the space and cautiously stepping to the taxidermy door, half expecting Grandma to be standing on the other side. Instead, I could hear her humming downstairs with the faint smell of food wafting up the stairs. In that moment, while still incredibly unsettled by what I'd seen, my nine-year-old self pushed it to the back of my mind. It would not only cause trouble if I admitted I'd snuck into somewhere I shouldn't, and in a family household, you respect elders and their secrets, even if you don't understand them. As I descended, Mom was waiting for me in the hallway, beaming and obviously eager to see me. We've got to go. Wish Grandma goodbye and thank her for having you. I walked up to Grandma, who had her back to me, and tugged at her apron to say goodbye. As she turned, for the briefest of moments, I saw something flick across her face before it snapped back into a smile, like she forgot where she was. She kneeled down and gave me a hug, saying she looked forward to seeing me again to finish our game. She then whispered something into my ear before rising up and continuing with her cooking. Mom said goodbye and we drove off, almost completely in silence. As we exited the town Grandma lived in, Mom asked me how my time with her was, to which I brushed it off and told her it was fine. The last thing I wanted to do was worry her or cause any kind of rift between her and Grandma, particularly when she was already an intensely private woman. We had a nice time. She made me play hide-and-seek and she never found me. You got back, so I guess she gave up. Hide-and-seek? Where did you end up hiding? Grandma knows that place inside and out. If she wanted to find you, she would have. Trust me. I hid in her special room, on the third floor. Mom began to slow down the car. Theodore? I'm gonna ask you something, and I need you to be completely honest with me, okay? The pit in my stomach re-emerged, but I nodded. I know you don't like being alone with her. You've always been a little scared of her. But did Grandma seem different to you while you were playing? I stared. I wasn't sure what to say and too young to properly express what I'd seen. I did what any nine-year-old would do when they were frightened. I cried. I ended up crying so hard I was sick on the side of the road. Mom soothed me and we drove home not talking about it for a long time. I remember that night in bed, hearing Mom having an argument with my dad, before he had another one on the phone. Grandma died in 2010, when I was 19 and she was 82. Her funeral was short and sparsely attended, only by a few close relatives and some old friends from her youth. They offered condolences and smiles that felt insincere, but were nonetheless appreciated. While the memory of what had happened had mostly faded, marred by time and my own desire to move past it, it was nonetheless still there. Like a black shadow looming over me throughout the proceedings. But of all people, it was my father who brought it up with me at the wake. He was a stout man of incredible strength and a sharp mind. He never minced words, but was always on hand to set me right or give any support. His salt-and-pepper hair combed neatly to the side, and tired eyes hidden behind thick glasses, he ushered me over to where he was sitting, 
small table towards the back of the bar, away from the mourners and my mother who were congregating outside. The sounds out there were deafening, and a chance to sit and talk with him about anything but death was a welcome conversation. How you doing, bud? My dad put his hand on my shoulder, a weak smile flittering across his tired face. He took out his cigarette, felt in his pockets for a lighter. As usual, he couldn't find one. I took the cigarette, lit it, and passed it to him. He gave a gracious nod in return. I'm fine, Dad. I knew it was going to happen sooner or later. Besides, it was your mom. I imagine this is far harder on you than it is on me. He took a long drag, blew the smoke away from me, and smiled. He looked up at the night sky. My mom was a, uh, a complex person, very hot and cold. But that's just who she was. Never happy or sad for long, just kind of floating in between. I'm glad she's at peace. Now she'll be the hider and I'll be the seeker. I felt a twitch run through my eyebrow. Something about that phrase irked me, but I couldn't place what. Chalking it up to tiredness, I ignored it. So, what do we get in the will? I assume the house and a ton of her finest china? I mean... You know I need a new house, Dad. Just saying. Birthday is coming up. He gave me a playful shove. I was glad to distract him. You wish, mate. Finish your studies first. She actually did leave us all something each, though. She put it all down on a little piece of paper. Weird. Even for her. What are they? I was eager to see what weird trinket I'd inherited from that old home. Knowing Grandma had collected a lot of strange things along the way... I hoped it was one of her ornaments from Japan. I coveted those growing up. He unfolded the piece of paper from his breast pocket, his brow furrowing as he tried to read Katakana for the first time in years. Well, to me, she left the house, her record collection, and some cigars she'd been saving. To your mom, she left her old tea set from Nagasaki, her cooking utensils, her nightgowns, and what's left of her wine cellar. Knowing Mom, I doubt there's that much left. (laughs) Well, damn, that's not much left for me. Guess it'll be an early birthday card with an incorrect age and a $10 bill. Mind your manners, you. She did leave you something. Well, go on. Disappoint me now so I'm not left in suspense. His eyes flashed and he grinned at me. One minute. I think you'll like this. He hurried inside and within a few moments came back with a small bundle wrapped in a cloth, a small note attached. As he passed it to me, I eagerly unwrapped it. No sooner had I seen the eyes, the limbs, and the shape of the taxidermy squirrel, I dropped it to the ground in disgust and fear. Dad was howling with laughter. (laughs) Oh, that's Grandma for you. She does this one time and you never get over it as a child. That woman has a sick sense of humor. But I was beyond his words, my eyes flashing with the memories of that afternoon when I was nine. The shelves upon shelves of animals, her face bearing no expression, staring into my soul. My chest contracted and I struggled to breathe as I stared at the mangled creature on the floor in front of me. Realizing his error, Dad stopped laughing and proceeded to help calm me down. Hey, Theodore, what's wrong? I've never seen you like this. Concern wrapped his tired face. I wasn't sure what to even tell him. Those animals. 
I saw an entire room of them in Grandma's house when I stayed with her years ago. It was in her special room on the third floor, next to the closet. In that moment, I saw something flitter across my dad's face I'd never seen there before. Panic. No. She boarded up that room before you were even old enough to walk. She promised. Theo, I I think you're confused. That room doesn't exist anymore. Maybe you were in the spare room. The wallpaper was red and black. There was a table in the middle with a book Enough. That's enough. I believe you. He paced in front of me, struggling to vocalize his apparent concern, but clearly considering his next steps. After a moment, he stared into space, and whatever he was looking for in his mind suddenly clicked. Turning on his heel, he walked towards me with purpose and placed a hand on my shoulder. (sighs) All right, this is a conversation I never thought I'd ever have with you, nor one that I ever wanted. But Grandma Effie clearly wanted this to come up, so here we are. I really thought she fixed her obsession. She promised me she'd never let this happen again. He sighed and took a drag from his cigarette. She wasn't just a private woman. She was sick. Very, very sick. I know. She had cancer for a long time and refused treatment. She was stubborn, like Mom is. He stared at the table, unwilling to make eye contact. No, Theo, not that kind of sick. Not the kind of sick that can be treated. She had a a mental affliction that just ripped her from her sanity, from everything around her. She would have these episodes that caused her to just stop being her, and she would become someone else. I didn't even know about this until a few years ago. He paused, took another drag, and stared at me. Theo, what happened when you stayed with her? Your mother and I have never pushed you on this, but I think now would be a good time to get it all out. I swallowed, a lump in my throat as I recalled everything from that afternoon. The outfit, the face, the whispering, the rooms. I resigned myself and told him everything I could remember. To his credit, he sat without judgment and waited until the end. When I was done, he took a breath and removed his glasses, pinching the bridge of his nose as he composed himself. He waved my mom over, and the moment she saw the look on his face, she turned white. But she steeled her resolve and sat by Dad's side, hand over his. We were lucky your mother got back when she did. I knew it was a mistake to leave you with her, and after she told me what happened to your grandma, I never let you near her alone again. What do you mean what had happened to her? I was already resigned to the fact that I was going to have sleepless nights again. Might as well have the full picture of it all. Mom cleared her throat and her soothing voice cut the air. The sound of the wind providing an ominous backdrop. Effie had a rare condition called Callisole Syndrome, where her left brain and right brain didn't properly communicate. She would have moments where her right hand would reach for a knife and she'd have to try and stop it with her left. Initially, this was a minor issue, but she began to have these fits. And sometimes, a different person would come out. They would rarely speak and would always act violently to anyone who came near. Dad's leg began shaking, but he took up the tale. 
On more than a handful of occasions, your mother, and later myself, would need to call the hospital to restrain her. On one of the trips she went on was to see a specialist at Harvard, who said he could make her condition manageable with no danger to anyone around her. Well, she took it soon after you were born, and when she came back, there was an immediately noticeable aura around her, like, like she was free, but dangerous. She became more private, and we elected to respect that distance. I mean, what if she had gotten better and just wanted space? I stared at him, mouth agape and unable to think of anything to say. But the feeling in my stomach was getting worse the more he explained. The night after you came home in a state, I spoke with her and asked her what had happened. She said you were playing a game with her and she thought you may have hurt yourself, but that she never found you until you came down to say goodbye. He sighed, his shoulders heaving under the burden of whatever he was carrying. Grandma Effie had a, uh, a fascination with you since you were born. We don't know why. She had seven other grandchildren, but refused to hold them or acknowledge them, except for you. The day Mum went out was on purpose. Effie said she needed time alone with you. We thought... We thought maybe she just wanted to talk to you. We always had our suspicions of her behaviors. But you have to understand, this woman was very, very cautious. Nothing could be proven. He turned to face me, concern and guilt aging him before my very eyes. I know you saw something else in that house. Something your mother and I could never prove. Something you've tried very hard to pretend wasn't what it actually was. You knew Grandma had a hobby, and you assumed, in that dark room, it was still her hobby. Stop. My eyes were watering, and I felt the bile rise in my stomach at the thought of those contorted limbs, those looks of terror... You knew she relished silence, valued privacy, and did anything to protect those two things. That's why she removed the squirrels from her garden. But those weren't squirrels in her room, Theodore. I know they weren't. Dad, please don't. I was pleading with him as he placed a hand over mine to reassure me. Nothing will happen to you. Don't worry. You're my son. You were just a boy. But this needs to end now that she's passed. But I have to know, Theodore. His hands shook, and his voice croaked as he asked the one thing that I was dreading the most. Images of those on the shelves flashed before me. The book that I spent hours sifting through and memorizing every page coming back to me like the tips for riding a bike. What did she say to you when you were leaving? There never was any photos... No animals on the shelves. No crawl space. My mind had done its best to conjure up a safe room while it dealt with what it had seen. Innumerable children lined the walls, each one perfectly preserved and positioned. Eyes bulging and staring unceasingly at the center of the room where a small ritualistic table sat. Two pillars and a book resting in the center... The moss green cover emblazoned with an unusual symbol, and a title across its spine in faded gold letters. The Expressionless, a guide to godhood. In it were the teachings of how to utilize one's gifts at an early age, to hone them into tools that could benefit the user. 
an encouragement on discussing tactics at great length with one's other self, and listening to the voices in the head as a guiding light from the vacant mother. It had tips from everything on lying to officers, tracking, tool usage, disposal, and desirable traits down to the things that to this day I still don't understand. On that day, I had stumbled into something I was never meant to see. Something that my entire family had never been allowed to see for over 30 years. The end result of Grandma Effie's habit. I took my hand away from my dad's and began running them up and down my arms as the realization came back to me. The last thing I remembered her saying before I left that day. Something that every future encounter would haunt. I know what you saw. Dad's eyes widened as he scanned the bar, noticing something before bringing his gaze back to me. Theodore, I know about the book. She mentioned it in passing before. She said it had a purchase history called a a legacy club that housed a lot of loyal members. If she knows that you saw... He trailed off, finishing his cigarette with shaking fingers. We need to go to the police. Tell someone this who can help us. Dad put his lighter away, steadying his hands. Won't do any good. As I said, your grandma was very careful. There won't be anything. The most we can do is maintain the secret and hope it doesn't come back on us. I protested, but he shook his head, leading me out of the room and telling my mother we'd see her at home. Shaking and feeling my world fall apart beneath me, I moved on jelly legs. An elderly mourner held the door open for me as I quietly thanked them. Oh dear, it's getting a bit too much for him, Justin. Yeah, yeah, he's just a bit rattled, that's all. Time to take him home. Thank you so much for coming, Eleanor. Dad's voice was shaky, but he made sure he sounded sad. Oh, it's no trouble. No trouble at all. Eleanor still looked at me as I walked towards the exit. She called after me. After all, he's her legacy, isn't he? I felt my pace pick up at that, getting into my car with Dad and driving home. Later, after hiring a PI at my insistence, we'd come to find that Effie had indeed written a book a mixture of religious ramblings and tips on how to harm animals. There was no record of who it had been sold to or where, leading them to believe if anyone had already purchased it, they had done so face to face. As for the children, there was no sign of shelves upon shelves of broken children in her house. They chalked it up to an overactive imagination from a scared nine-year-old after seeing his grandma have an episode. And with that, the secret was buried... Our lives continued on, and it was largely never spoken of again except in hushed tones on cold nights. Now, with my father having Alzheimer's disease and my mother getting on in years, I'm the last one left to know the truth. It dies with me. There was, however, one last thing that came about from this. In 2012, after writing The Expressionless and its sudden viral explosion... I was inundated with thousands of emails, many of which were asking for the origins of the character. 
Some were angry parents, and others were armchair literary critics giving me a piece of their mind on it in my other works. But one stood out from the rest, and ultimately was one of the driving forces behind why I elected to pull back the curtain and tell all of you where it came from. It was an email from a doctor in the UK whose daughter had read the original story and brought it to his attention as he was a fan of horror stories. Dear Theodore, I hope this finds you well. I don't actually know if this is your real email, but if it is, I wanted to tell you that I loved your story. It was simple and effective, even if the ending was a tad weird. Goodness knows how you came up with such an idea. I wanted to ask you, though, is that all you remember? It's fun to fantasize sometimes, to imagine what it's like to have a different life or different circumstances. There are a lot of different things on offer for escapism, from visiting the countryside to virtual reality headsets. But in this tale, shared with us by author Max Voynich, we meet a man who discovers a tantalizing offer that may be too good to be true. I join Joe Sheary, Erica Sanderson, and David Alt in performing this tale. So remember the old adage, be careful what you wish for, especially when that wish involves handing over your credit card and signing up to a strange deep fake site on the internet. And I promise you that you won't be expecting what you see when you watch your face, your porn.mov. My wife tells me she's cheating on me about halfway through dinner. I work my way through the potatoes, the beans, and most of the meat before replying. Who? That doesn't matter. It very much does matter, I think. I imagine a six-foot-four, muscular, chiseled Greek god of a man fucking my wife. I think about the way he holds her. Is he gentle, rough, and the noises she makes for him? Is she quiet? Does she scream for him? Michael. I'm working on the last of my chicken at this point, wondering if she's ever fucked both of us on the same day. Michael, listen to me. I want a divorce. I watch her for a while. Her jaw. The hollow of her neck. Is he better? What? Is he better than me? She purses her lips. I think she's going to tell me that he's just different. That she's sorry it had to be like this and that she still loves me, really, deep down. That it was a mistake and no one could be better than me. Yes, Michael, he's better than you. She tells me that she's staying in the house until she finds a place to rent whilst we sort this out. I say I think I want to take the bed. 
Trust me, you don't. In our bed. Sleep on the couch, Michael. And so that's where I find myself. Working my way through a bottle of expensive scotch I saved for a special day and browsing the internet. My browsing is aimless, filthy, meandering. I lurch from website to website, going nowhere. That is, until I see an ad. It's one of those video ones. I click on it. The man on the screen has the body of a porn star and the voice of a god. The banner reads, Your face, your porn. Do you want to live out your most disgusting, most depraved fantasies? Do you want to see yourself do it? Using state-of-the-art, deep-fake technology, we're able to show you what your deepest desires actually look like. See them played out across the screen. The things you've only spoken of in whispers that you've never even admitted to yourself. Take control of your life. Be the best version of yourself you can be. This is your face, your porn, your reality. I'm in a fuck it sort of mood. More than a little drunk, and I think that this might be the best way to get back at her. I don't even have to leave the comfort of my home, and I can see what I look like doing whatever I want. All those things I never told her, the things she'd never do, I can see it. The ad is blank now, aside from the text on the white screen, that and a tacky gif of red lips blowing a kiss before running their tongue along their teeth. I watch the mouth on the ad blow kiss after lurid kiss at me and start to feel convinced. I click. Your face, your porn will superimpose my face convincingly into any situation and I'll watch myself carry out my darkest, deepest desires. There are different packages. Celebrity, fetish, slice of life, narrative and on and on. But one in particular catches my eye. Surprise me. And so, squinting so that I can read the numbers on my credit card, I subscribe. I fill out a quick form, what I'm into, my kinks, my age, name, that sort of thing. It then requires me to take a video of my face from different angles, then makes me cycle through a few basic facial expressions, takes a sample of my voice saying a few basic sentences. Not long after, I pass out. I wake to a vicious hangover and a notification on my phone. An email containing the first video. Your face, your purchase, .mov. It's really me. Or at least, it looks exactly like me. It's night, and fake me seems to be followed by a camera. Fake me spends the evening going to various shops around town and buying tape and an apple from each store. He seems to make the cashiers nervous. And one girl even starts shaking whilst she tries to find the code for the tape when it won't scan. He is impatient, wraps his knuckles on the desk, calls her a bitch under his breath as he leaves. Wide shot, he walks down the street past the glass window. The cashier is crying silently inside. That's it. 
I tried to click forward to see if there's anything else, but that's it. I watched the whole thing, expecting it to be the build-up to something, but no. Instead, all I see is something that looks exactly like me drive around town and buy apples and tape. I try to see if I can find the website again to cancel my subscription, but I can't find anything. I try to look through my history, but it's not there. In fact, there's just an empty gap between 1 and 3 a.m. Whilst it isn't porn, the technology behind it is still amazing. The person on the screen looks exactly, exactly like me. I don't go to work. I watch TV, drink beer, smoke inside. My wife, and she still is my wife, complains. I don't listen. Around 6pm, I receive another email. Yourfaceyourgums.mov the camera's focused on the me that isn't me sat at a table. He's answering questions. It's my voice. My voice. He says he's sorry. He says he doesn't know. No, he never knew. He's fiddling with something in his mouth, above his teeth. He's never heard that name before. He says he'll do something if they insist, but it's not like he'll like it. The voice behind the camera laughs. Close up of his mouth, there is a thick black hair protruding from his gum, just above his teeth, and he's trying to wiggle it loose. It isn't working until it does, and he pulls out a knot of tangled hairs from the pink of his gum, and they keep coming and coming and coming until there's nearly a foot of hair, and with each tug, it wobbles his front two teeth a little. He says this has never happened to him before. The voice behind the camera laughs again. I don't sleep that well that night. Something about the videos has unsettled me. They're too realistic. And watching that fake me fiddle with his gums made my mouth hurt. I say nothing to my wife when she comes in. Make no effort to tidy the takeaway boxes from the table. She looks at me for a long, long time, as if something is building up inside her, some thought or opinion about me that she's always wanted to tell me, and I watch as it almost bursts out her lips. And then, nothing. I hear something looking through our bins as I try to sleep. A cat? Someone homeless? They disappear when I get up to look. The notification wakes me up. Another video. I try to reply to the address that's sending me these, telling them I want them to stop, but the email bounces back. I have no choice but to watch. Your face, your trash, The me that can't possibly be me is eating at a new table, but the whole table is covered in trash, dirt, Empty cans, pizza boxes, rotting fruit, bones, tiny crawling things, etc, etc. There are flies buzzing aimlessly about. He's shoveling as much as he can in his mouth. Coffee grounds spill down his chin as he coughs. He keeps looking to the left of the camera after swallowing. He winces, pulls something from his mouth. A razor. 
He has bitten a razor. He has bitten a razor. His blood is dark and thick and mixes with the coffee grounds that dribble down his chin so that it looks lumpy and black. He coats his shirt and his hands as he attempts to wipe his face. He looks to the left of the camera again and continues eating. At this point, I consider deleting my email account. Something is wrong here. There is something in these videos that's beyond unsettling. I don't remember pulling half those facial expressions, and his reactions are just like mine. It's too real. That's my wince. That's the wince of pain I know I do when I stub my toe, or stand on a drawing pin, or bite my tongue. But when I get up to fix myself a drink, I find my wife's car's gone, and I know that she's with him, with this guy she's fucking, and I feel a stab of self-loathing that goes so deep it pierces my stomach and makes me wretch. I watch the video again. Evening comes. Your face, your anger, Mov. He's carrying a bunch of grapefruit in his arms in the street. A small, old man bumps into him and the fruit go flying. They make this wet pop as they hit the floor and in the noise you can hear the fibers that held the fruit together tear. The man is knocked over. The me that looks too much like me sees someone nearby drinking from a thermos and grabbing it. He empties the scolding water all over the fallen man's face. Close up. The me that shouldn't be me spits on the old guy and winks at the stunned crowd watching. The fallen man moans, spasms and reaches for his face. Blisters are already forming on his cheeks beneath his hands. I don't know why, but I sort of like this one. The noise of the fruit is so satisfying, so visceral, and there's something triumphant about the way the fake me snatches the boiling water and pours it over the man. Fake me is in control. That evening, my wife tells me that she doesn't think she ever loved me. Not like the way she loves her new man, and that come to think of it, I'm not much of a man at all. She says this whilst I try and wipe ketchup from my shirt, but only succeed in getting some on the couch. When she goes to bed upstairs, I watch your face, your anger over and over again. I doze. With my eyes half open, the me that isn't me, the fake me, winks at the camera. My heart gets faster. I pretend to be asleep and keep my eyes open just a sliver. Fake me walks away from the crowd, right up to the camera, knocks on my screen a few times with his knuckles. It sounds like glass. He watches through the screen, smiling. His eyes are on me, I'm sure of it. He pushes his face against the camera, against my screen, and stares right at me. There is something behind those eyes, behind that face. Something dark and waiting. He keeps watching me. I think he knows I'm awake. We stay like that until morning. Your face, your neighbor, Mov. He knocks on Mrs. Tay's door. He's holding an apple and tape. She invites him in. 
He enters, the camera follows. In one movement, he stuffs the apple in Mrs. Tay's mouth and forces her to the ground where he binds her arms and legs with tape. Someone from off camera hands him a hammer. Wide shot. Mrs. Tay struggles on the floor. The me that watched me looks through her records, puts one on. It's old, slow, and the vinyl crackles as he drags her to the basement. The video continues for half an hour more, until the vinyl has finished and there's just a loop of a faint crackle. And then there are two thuds, a snap, and it ends. I can see someone's car I don't recognize in my driveway. It looks expensive. I go to investigate, but can't find anyone near it. And so I decide to go and check on Mrs. Tay. I stumble down the street in my dressing gown, face covered in patches of stubble, and knock on her door. No one answers. Bill Roberts walks past, and I wave at him. See Mrs. Tay today, Bill? He shakes his head. I can tell he's trying not to react to how I look, trying to be polite. Haven't seen her in a week or so, Michael. A pause. He's finding the right words, I can tell. Are you doing okay? You don't look so good. Never better. The combination of emotions I'm feeling is hard to put into words. I am elated. There is a version of me, online, who is in control and is acting. I'm also terrified. Whatever is on that screen knows about me, knows something about my life. I don't know if it is here, in this reality, or if it's just peering in. Either option makes my chest tight. I've drunk the house dry and have to make several trips to stock up on liquor. I even call a few old contacts and manage to get some pills, although I promise myself I'll only take them when things get really, really bad. Your face, your trial, .mov. The shortest video so far. The me I wish I was pushes against his jaw, probing. Slowly, surely, he slides his hand under the skin of my face until I see the outline of my fingers under his skin, like five giant malformed veins. He wriggles the fingers and the skin comes away from my face. The ring finger emerges from my eyelids. He pulls the hand out and it's covered in some sort of embryonic fluid. He winks at the camera. At me? I try the same thing that evening after I've shaved, pushing my fingers into my face as if the skin is going to slip and I'll be able to do what he did, but nothing happens. The long nails cut the tender, freshly shaven skin and I end up just moving my face the conventional way. I smile and frown, then stick out my tongue, then puff out my cheeks. Once I'm convinced my face still works, I go to bed. I think my wife sneaks in in the back door. I love her. Her Casanova. I can hear them fuck, I think. I can't wait for morning. Can't wait for a new dot mov. I watch your face, your trial dot mov and repeat to help me sleep. And when he is convinced I'm asleep, he comes right up to the camera again. But this time, he fiddles with the edges, as if testing the boundaries 
his breathing gets deeper, lustier. He cannot find a way out, so he just watches, cycling through expressions the way I did, convinced that I am asleep. Am I? When I wake up, there's a note from my wife telling me that she's moving in with him for a while. There is a voicemail from work telling me that I'm fired and that there'll be no severance pay. You'll face your junkies, Mov. He, I, finds a couple of junkies on the outside of town. He shows them a huge stack of cash and they both nod. They have about six teeth between them and walk with a pronounced stoop, taking him to an abandoned building on the edge of town. He says, go in ahead of me, I'll be right in. They pause a while, trying to figure out what the catch is. Why this seemingly average guy would offer all this cash up front. But he hands them both small foil packages and they quickly dash inside. As before, he slowly slips his hand under the skin of his face, working it up and up and up until both hands are completely under the skin. The camera pans down to the rusty gate that borders the property. He hangs something from the gate before walking down the overgrown path into the house. It takes me a while to realize that the thing hanging from the gate is a face. My face. Like a mask, the mouth and eyes are empty and the skin flaps like a heavy flag in the breeze. There's a sound of cars driving past every few minutes, then two noises like grapefruits bursting, fibrous and wet and sudden. He walks back down the path and puts the face back on. I do not manage to see what lies under that face, but I desperately want to. I think my hair is falling out. I take a long walk around the block. When I return, I find my wife staring at my laptop as if she's seen the devil. She turns to me slowly. What the fuck is this, Michael? The laptop is positioned behind her back, so I can see the screen and her at once. I remember the contents of your face, your junkies.mov and start to panic. If that fell into the wrong hands with no context, I can explain. The videos, they're not mine. All of the places, the situations, they're fake, I think. She shakes her head. What situations? Jesus! Michael, it's just hours and hours and hours of footage of you whispering to the camera. It's just your face. What's fake about that? I can tell that she's a little scared. Her disgust at me slowly morphing into something uglier, nastier. She takes a couple of steps back, as if seeing me for the first time. Behind her, I can see the me that isn't me, the fake me smiling at the camera on the screen. The footage is paused, but he's still moving. Closer and closer to the camera, his eyes wide with a rigor mortis smile, a smile as if he's just learned how to control the musculature of his face perfectly and... He's holding a finger to his lips. She takes another step back. I try to warn her, but no words come. Instead, I'm frozen in fear. 
seeing the fake me grow closer and closer to the camera, to the screen as her back's turned and he's pushing against the glass of the screen, trying to find a weak point, a crack that will allow him to move from his reality into ours. She can't take it anymore. She turns around and without looking at the screen, she picks up my laptop and smashes it down onto the floor. You're sick. She leaves. The thought of the screen smashed for some reason terrifies me. It's as if whatever barrier was between me and that thing is broken. And although I can't see anything, I can feel him leaking into our world. Like the soft hiss of gas through a broken pipe or air escaping a valve. I take the laptop to be fixed. Pay extra to make it happen as fast as possible. As soon as the screen is fixed, I take it home, desperate to turn it on, to see if there are any new videos, to check on the old one. I try loading your face you purchased on MOV, the first video I was sent. A familiar scene plays, except there's no fake me. It's the exact same footage, I'm sure of it, but the me that isn't me isn't there at all. The cashier still weeps silently, but it's not due to any version of me scaring her. I try loading your face, your anger.mov. The same. The exact same video, but the fake me isn't there. The man still falls over. Coffee is still poured on his face. The crowd still reacts. But there's no me. Your face, your junkies.mov is now just footage of two junkies walking into a crack house and entering it. They still don't leave, but there's no face on the gate. Nothing. No sign that I was ever there. The house suddenly feels so empty. I can hear the faint tap, tap, tap of the branches against the upstairs window. The gurgling of the drain. The way the old wood creaks ever so slightly with age. I am alone, and I know then that the reason he's not on the screen is because he's here. It's me. As I feel the sweat start to run down my back, I receive one final email. Your face, your turn, dot more. Wide shot. Me. But the real me this time. Alone. The room is full of trash. Rotting food. Empty beer bottles. Liquor bottles. Smashed on the floor pill bottles, crumpled clothes. The real me holds up a hand and waves it. This is lying. This is real time. This is happening. Now. The room is dark. Objects are obscured. In shadow. Something moves behind the window. A curtain rustles. Bottles clink. He is in here. Somewhere, watching, waiting. I'm alone with myself, and I have all the time in the world.
As we mentioned, there are lots of things on offer for escapism. Have you seen some of those virtual reality games? They're incredible. How else can you breathe on Mars or romantically rub noses with a shark? If we're talking escapism, then let's be real. Virtual reality is the sweetest nectar. And the man in our next tale, shared with us by author Mediogre, clearly agrees when he finds an ad for a cut-price virtual reality device on Craigslist. It'll be perfect for his daughter, he figures. There's just one slight catch. Performing this tale are Alexis Bristow, Atticus Jackson, and Nicole Goodnight. So don't worry, of course your new device to other worlds isn't inhabited by a spirit. That's just silly, right? There's no such thing as haunted VR. Whenever tragedy strikes, it's common for those who are affected to think back to one point in time that could have changed everything for the better. If I could have just done one thing different, none of this would have ever happened. For this story, it was the day that my best friend and roommate, Eric, asked me about virtual reality. Hey, Lisa. Have you heard much about V-Revolution? Uh, yeah. It's one of the best VR headsets on the market. It has retina sensors that can tell where your eyes are focusing and adjust the image for a more immersive experience. A little pricey, though. Why do you ask? I found a pre-owned unit on Craigslist for $100. I'm worried that it's a scam. Are you fucking kidding me? That's a steal. The V-Revolution runs for seven times that. Is it broken or missing components or anything? No. From the photos he shared, it looks fine. He swears it's hardly ever been used, but... But there's a catch. Uh, you could say that. Well, spit it out. What is it? He says it's, uh, haunted. <laughs> and you actually believe that? No, but I don't know. It's It seems irresponsible, you know? I mean, this isn't just for me. It's, it's a gift for Danielle. Danielle was Eric's nine-year-old daughter. She spent most of her time at her mother's house. Eric only had custody of her on the weekends. Knowing your daughter, she would like it more if it were haunted. (laughs) (laughs) Danielle was a badass kid and was all about that type of macabre stuff. Still, Eric still seemed unconvinced. I don't know. It just seems like something white people would do in a horror film to get themselves killed. You are a white person. Exactly. That's why I'm asking you. (laughs) Asking a person of color for advice in a possible haunting situation is a sensible thing to do. You might just survive a horror film, Eric. Nah, I wouldn't go that far. I say you buy it, and then we can try it out. If it works, then great. If not, it was worth the gamble. It seemed like a reasonable thing to say at the time. That sounds like a good plan. The next few days while I was at work, I got a series of text messages that should have raised some red flags. I wish I would have known then what I know now. Everything could have been avoided. Hindsight is a bitch. The message is read. The guy wants me to meet him in a Walmart parking lot at 9 p.m. Isn't that a bit sketchy? Maybe he just works late? Not everyone has 9 to 5 jobs. Yeah, but at a Walmart parking lot? This is starting to sound more like a drug deal than a simple electronics purchase. I wouldn't trust strangers on the internet with my home address either. Fair enough. 
Just in case, bring my 9 mil pistol. You know I hate guns. Hey, if you're feeling anxious about this deal, you might as well pack heat. Fine, I'll bring it. He didn't text me again until shortly after 9 p.m. That was way weird. What happened? The guy pulled up in a beat-up car. Explains why he's selling his VR unit. Yeah, but he gets out wearing a trench coat and a fedora. Yeah, you're right. Fedoras are weird. But again, that fits the description of a gamer type who spent more money than he can afford on electronics. Yeah, but his fedora was pushed so far down on his forehead that I thought it was going to fall off. Then his collar was popped. It was like he was trying to hide his face. Not once did he make eye contact with me. In fact, I never even got a look at his eyes. Did you check the merch? Is it grade A product? Lol. Yeah, it came with the box and all. It looks brand spanking new. So what's the problem? You got a great deal from a weirdo you met on the internet. Yeah, I know. Something about this just doesn't feel right. Where was this foreboding dread when you slept with your baby mama? Not cool. Yeah, I know. You got a kick-ass daughter out of that ordeal. Do me a favor and take pics of any ghosts you see coming out of that haunted VR headset. Will do. When I got home, I saw the VR headset hooked up to Danielle's gaming PC, which was connected to the living room TV. This was convenient because the living room allotted the largest playing area for a VR system. The only accommodation we would have to provide was moving the coffee table into the kitchen. We decided to go ahead and install the V-Revolution drivers. I even took the initiative to buy some of the best VR games that were available on Steam. The only problem was that the VR headset didn't seem to work. The headset's wires consisted of four USB 3.0 cables. I've never seen a headset with so many USB cables, but I also haven't had too much experience setting these things up. All the wires were connected to the front of the PC, but when we launched Steam VR, we got an error notification that read, No VR headset detected. Well, damn it. I guess by haunted, he meant broken piece of shit. Do you have the seller's number? Yeah, I do. I'll shoot him a text. Talking to him gives me the creeps. Well, maybe Danielle can figure it out. You know she's a genius when it comes to this stuff. Yeah. Eric looked disappointed. I could see that he was really looking forward to having the headset ready to go by the time Danielle came over, so I spoke up. Listen, if she can't figure it out, I'll buy us a new one. You don't have to do that, Lisa. Bitch, this ain't for you. If you were nice, me and Danielle might even let you try out our new VR rig. I could see that lifted Eric's spirits some. When Danielle came over, she wasted no time and went straight for the VR headset. Oh my god, holy shit! The V-Revolution? This is so freaking cool! Hey, watch your language. And don't get too excited, I, I haven't been able to get it to work. I'm not sure if Danielle was even listening. She was jumping up and down in the type of excitement you only see in kids on Christmas morning. Oh, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you! Honey, it doesn't work. Maybe you can figure it out. If not, we'll get you a new one. I decided to grab the instruction manual to read through and see if it would help. Betwixt the headset manual and the warranty information, I discovered a piece of paper from who I could only imagine was the odd man that sold us the device. The slip of paper was black and had writing written on it. It read, This product is haunted. Use at your own risk. Item three of six. Here's the problem, Dad. The USB ports on the front of the computer don't work. That's why we got a seven-slot USB card that's plugged directly into the motherboard. 
Danielle never ceased to amaze me. In a matter of minutes, she was able to figure out what we did wrong. She was using the wireless keyboard to launch Steam and see what games we should try. You guys got super hot too? Oh my god! Eric, come and take a look at this. In a second, I want to see if this works. The Steam VR menu popped up in a tiny window, now saying, VR headset detected. Eric, this is kind of weird. He finally got his attention away from the TV screen and walked over to read the slip of paper from the seller. <laughs> uh, this has to be a joke, right? I mean, look, we got it working. Danielle already had the headset strapped to her face. I'm not seeing anything, Dad. I could see the straps holding the headset to Danielle's face begin to cinch tight around her small head. Dad, it, it's getting really tight. It's starting to hurt. Danielle's hands moved to her face, trying to pull the headset off. Blood began to spit from the seams of where the headset met her face. She dropped to the floor, laying on her back while she lashed around and wailed in agony. The following events are hard to describe for the same reason that it's hard to get a complete report of a combat incident. When in times of peril, the human mind fucks with your memory. In a sense, time itself gets distorted. I remember seeing Danielle writhing on the floor in pain and fear. I remember seeing blood everywhere. And I remember seeing Eric running to his daughter and attempting to remove the source of anguish from Danielle's face. I immediately ripped the USB cables from the computer, knocking it over in the process. It gave a squishy thud as it fell on the blood-soaked carpet. I then ran into the kitchen towards the drawer containing scissors. With all the adrenaline running through my veins, I yanked the drawer from its slot. The contents of the drawer scattered across the kitchen tile. I sifted through the other junk on the floor until I found the scissors and then ran back into the living room to help Eric. Eric, call 911. I'll get this fucking thing off her face. I had to physically push Eric off of his daughter and then repeat my order before he could finally process what I was saying. I pushed one of the scissor blades underneath the headset, probably cutting into her scalp. I didn't have time to think about that. I managed to cut through the straps, but the device was still stuck to her face. As I began to wriggle it free, I heard the sickening sound of tearing flesh. Beneath the mask, Danielle's eyes and face were a mess of gore. The contents of her eye sockets were annihilated. My combat life-saving training kicked in and I tore my shirt and began wrapping it around her head. You're going to be okay, Danielle. I've got you. You're going to be okay. <laughs> it hurts so bad. <laughs> Please. I can't stop hurting. <laughs> then, Danielle lost consciousness. I didn't find out exactly what happened until after the paramedics and police arrived. The headset was designed to inject two thin metal spikes into the user's eyes. These spikes were spring-loaded to fork out into the shape of arrowheads. Once these arrowheads punctured into Danielle's eyes, they began to spin. We had essentially strapped two blenders to Danielle's face. The headset was nefariously designed to look completely inconspicuous until it was plugged into a power source. It even used the VR headset sensors to detect when someone was wearing the unit before the trap was sprung. Danielle lived, 
but her eyes were damaged beyond repair. She would never see again. Eric did everything in his power to find the man who sold us the headset. However, the man used sophisticated IP hopping software and a disposable phone. A car matching the description of the perpetrator was found abandoned on the side of the road. It had been sanitized and burned. No DNA or fingerprints were salvaged. Sarah, Eric's ex, used this incident to revoke all custody of Danielle from him. Eventually, Eric's guilt got the best of him, and he shot himself in the same Walmart parking lot he went to when he purchased the cause of his daughter's ailment. He used the same 9mm pistol I told him to use when he met that fucking creep in the first place. So now my best friend is dead, and his daughter is crippled for the rest of her life. And yet the one thing I can't get out of my mind is the note that the bastard left with the VR instruction manual. This product is haunted. Use at your own risk. Item three of six. What does item three of six mean? Did he engineer more of these booby traps? Are they all VR headsets? I won't stop hunting him until I find out. Blaze it, dude. 420. (laughs) Well, that's the ethos our hero adopts when his wife goes out of town. And who better to turn to for his cravings than his good old buddy, Dave? Dave can always hook you up with the goods, after all. And this time, it's a new strain of weed called Mongoose. But in this tale, shared with us by author Simon Rosenberg, it's the morning after that brings the paranoia. Performing this tale are David Alt, James Cleveland, and Andy Cresswell. So when you're a middle-aged smoker, pay attention to any new coughs or discomfort. Maybe get it checked out as soon as possible. After all, it may be that there's something in my lung... Liz went away on a work trip and I had the house to myself, so I thought I'd get some weed and stay up late getting wrecked with my mate Dave. Since I got married, I can count on one hand the number of times I've been stoned. Dave put me in touch with his dealer. Nice chap, very grown up and middle class. We talked music and politics, both of which we mostly agreed on. He had a few varieties on offer and let me have a sniff of each. (laughs) I'm no expert, so I just asked him which he'd recommend. He said I should probably go for the White Widow, but mentioned offhand that he did have some extra special good shit. It's expensive, though. Of course, like a sucker, I asked him how much. Double, that's how much. Maybe I was an easy mark, but of course I had to know what was so great about this stuff. He smiled. This shit gets you super high. A really nice, spacey high. You won't even need to watch telly. 
Sure, he could have been trying to rip me off, but that just wasn't this guy's vibe, and anyway, Dave had vouched for him. It's not like I'm some student scraping by on a summer job. I'm 41 years old and I earn a pretty good salary, and this was a once-in-a-blue-moon opportunity to get super off my tits. So I humoured him and said, yeah, I'd take a look at it. So he went and fetched this stainless steel case. This is Moon Goose. (laughs) If I'm honest, I couldn't really tell the difference. It looked and smelled more or less the same as the other weeds. As far as I could see, it was just in a fancy box. He pointed out the density of the crystals, the strange pinkish hue in the center of the buds, but I only had the vaguest sense that these were probably good things without any idea of why. Trust me, it's worth it. About three hours after Liz walked out the door, Dave showed up. He looked at the weed and snorted. You've been had, mate. He admitted that he hadn't seen anything quite like it before, but insisted that no weed's worth that much. Still, he was eager to try it out. Dave lit the first joint, and a pinkish sap bubbled around the charred end. He raised his eyebrows. Cool. I must have lost my tolerance, because I was destroyed after three drags. While Dave sat there happily puffing away, chatting all sorts of bullshit... I started to phase in and out. I remember feeling like I was floating through space, speeding past planets and stars, intermittently phasing back into Dave's big red face, guffawing away at his own jokes. (laughs) The hallucinogenic episodes were far from comforting. It was cold, like I was actually flying through space. I mean, I'm sure space is much colder than that, but it made the whole thing feel really real. The next thing I remember is waking up on the couch with daylight streaming through the window and Dave nowhere to be seen. I felt like crap. More like I'd been drinking than smoking. I'd never had any kind of hangover off weed before. I must be getting old. My head was pounding, my limbs were stiff and achy, my lungs felt burnt, and there was a horrible charred taste in my throat. I mean... I smoke about 20 cigarettes a day and sometimes my lungs let me know I've been abusing them, especially in the mornings, but this was way worse. It put me off smoking until late afternoon when I got nicotine jitters. I went out into the garden and lit up and even though I was a little tender, that first lungful going down was so good. But by about halfway through the cigarette, I was coughing so hard I was bent double. As a middle-aged smoker, I was well used to hacking up chunks, so it was only when the cigarette fell out of my shaking fingers that I figured maybe something was wrong. I went into the bathroom and leaned over the sink. I was coughing compulsively so hard that I thought I was going to tear my throat. It felt like something was stuck in there. I wheezed and choked and thumped my chest with the flat of my fist, trying to shake it loose and bring it up. After a good five minutes, a massive wad of bright green phlegm flew out of my throat and splattered against the back of the sink. (laughs) It stuck to the porcelain like a lump of green-brown chewing gum. I'd be lying if I said I wasn't grossed out when I dislodged it with shaky fingers so I could wash it down the plug hole. Only when I did, I saw something that turned me cold from my head to my feet. The tangle of green gunk filmed in transparent saliva had a seam of bright red running through it. There was no mistaking it. The uber loogie was full of blood. 
I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there is pretty much nothing more terrifying than seeing blood in your own phlegm, and especially in such quantities. The rest of the weed went straight in the bin. I didn't smoke for the rest of the day or the day after that. Just thinking about it turned my stomach. The rest of the coveted me time while Liz was away was spent on the couch with my phone googling blood in phlegm. The horrible possibilities, lung cancer, chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, emphysema, chronic bronchitis. I tried to reassure myself that there were less catastrophic causes. I had been coughing a lot. The blood could have just been from my throat. Maybe I'd picked up a chest infection. These things were far more likely than the horror stories. But when you're past 40 and you're a heavy smoker, you're edging into high-risk territory and all of the stuff that's unlikely becomes distinctly possible. By the time Liz came home, I had quit smoking. I made my mind up. I was done. That was it for me. I wasn't going to so much as look at another cigarette for the rest of my life. As much as I mourned losing my favorite hobby, I was glad to be free of it. At the last minute, I'd pulled my head from out under the guillotine. I went cold turkey. It was unpleasant, but whenever I thought about smoking, I pictured that bloody wad of phlegm, and it was enough to blow even the worst cravings to smithereens. Needless to say, Liz was over the moon. I didn't speak to Dave for the next couple of weeks. I was worried that seeing him might tempt me, or at least make for an uncomfortable evening of jittery cravings. The last thing I heard from him was the day after our last session. He'd texted, Man, that shit was hardcore. I'd replied, Yeah. And that was pretty much it. I quit smoking, Liz was happy, my friends and family and work colleagues all commented on how I smelled better, I looked healthier, there was more colour in my skin. I went on to live a happier, healthier life and that was the end of it. Except it wasn't. Three weeks later, in the middle of the night, I was coughing so hard it woke Liz up and she could sleep through a plane crashing through the bedroom wall. She asked if I was okay, and I managed to say I was fine without sounding like I was dying, and I went downstairs. This time, what I coughed up into the sink was mostly blood. It had some solidity to it, some massive tissue, but whether it was a clot of blood or phlegm covered in stuff, it was all red. There wasn't even a trace of green mucus. I properly shat myself. If you've seen that film Ivan's XTC when he coughs up a clump of blood onto the pillow... It was just like that. And a week later, he dies of lung cancer. Oh, not a spoiler, by the way. That's how the movie starts. I didn't want to tell Liz, but I couldn't hide my face. I'd turned white. She told me to make an appointment with the doctor. I'd been meaning to get checked out to see if I'd escaped the high-risk bracket without some tumorous passenger coming along with me, but I'd wanted just to put it all out of my mind. And I had felt fine, better than ever. Until now. Now, normally, you have to wait a couple of weeks for an appointment with the GP. I live in the UK, where we have the NHS. No idea what it's like in other countries. Uh, But when I said I'd been coughing up blood, they told me to come in as soon as I could for an emergency appointment. Yeah. You know the feeling when you really hurt yourself? Like, say, if you break a bone or something and your body rings those shock alarm bells and you go cold from your head to your feet? I've been feeling that way constantly. I was in a state of mortal terror. Considering, really considering what I would do if these turned out to be the last few weeks of my life. I sat in the waiting room at the surgery and this was all that I could think about. There was no escape from it. 
The doctor was really good. She smiled and nodded while she took my blood pressure and checked my pulse and reassured me that whilst coughing up blood can be frightening, there could be a whole host of other explanations. It could really all turn out to be nothing. Nevertheless, she referred me for a chest x-ray the following day. I sat in the waiting room of the walk-in x-ray center for an hour and a half the next morning, shivering all the while, my teeth chattering, looking around at the other people and wondering if they could see that there was something seriously wrong with me, wondering which of them had minor complaints and which of them might have only weeks to live. My name was called and I went into the x-ray room and a woman told me to give the machine a big hug and breathe in while she took a picture of my insides. She told me to call my doctor next week for the results. Strangely enough, as I walked out of there, I started to feel normal again. Whether it was because I was doing something about it or just the idea that, hey, it might all turn out to be nothing or at least something less bad than it could be, I don't know. But I managed to go to work as normal the rest of that day to have dinner with Liz and enjoy the conversation and the food. The surgery called the next morning. When was the earliest time I could come in? (laughs) Immediately it all came flooding back, the panic, the shaky hands, the thoughts of mortality, the cold feeling eerily reminiscent of those hallucinatory deep dives through space. I sat in the overheated waiting room with my thickest coat on, shivering. The doctor told me that there was a large mass in my left lung. She showed me a picture, a large white blob on the negative image which I couldn't quite convince myself was actually a photo of the inside of my body. I stopped feeling cold then, I went numb instead. My head padded with cotton wool, I nodded and responded with monosyllables while the doctor told me about referrals and biopsies and meetings with oncologists. All I could think of was, man, I want a cigarette. I know, I I know, I know, I know. It, it was the most stupid thing I could do. It wasn't necessarily all over. There were treatment options and there was radiotherapy and chemotherapy and maybe I could survive with one lung and live a relatively normal life, but I couldn't help it. I guess the way my brain was interpreting all this was like, hey, nothing you can do now. You've given yourself the big C. You might as well enjoy what time you got left. As soon as I got out of there, I didn't call the hospital or the specialist or even Liz. I called Dave. I desperately wanted... No, no, I needed to get out of my buzzing head and pronto, but Dave didn't pick up the bastard. I was sure he'd get back to me sooner or later, but I was desperate. So I called his dealer. Sod's law, he didn't pick up either. I chucked him a text. It turned into a mini-essay spilling my guts about how it was essential that I medicated myself as soon as possible because I just couldn't handle the way this was making me feel right now. Anyway, I was sure he'd get back to me, unless I'd put him off with my melodrama. But for now, anyway, I was dry and I wasn't high. I regretted having thrown the rest of that super expensive weed in the bin. Surely it would have been sensible to keep it stashed away for a rainy day. With no access to narcotics, I did the next best thing. I bought a bottle of whiskey and a 20-pack of Marlboros and a lighter. And I went home and I sat in the lounge and I slugged from the bottle and I chain-smoked my way through the cigarettes. The room was thick with smoke. Fuck it, Liz would just have to live with it. I needed this. The first drag felt so good. I mean, the head rush was so hard and it made my head swim and the smoke was rough on my throat after not having smoked in a few weeks, but it was still just the best sensation I'd ever felt. I started coughing almost immediately, but I wasn't going to let a little thing like a cough put me off. 
By the fifth or sixth cigarette, my body was shaking and my chest was burning. I got a roll, a kitchen roll to cough phlegm into, and pretty soon, it was coming out bloody. But I'd already fucked myself, so it wasn't like things could get any worse. I was desensitized to the blood now. It didn't shock me anymore. All that mattered was the next cigarette, the next slug of whiskey. When I was about 15 cigs in, the coughing became so overpowering that I collapsed sideways onto the couch. The lit cigarette fell from my trembling fingers and burnt a hole in the carpet. I was spluttering blood. Fine red mist settled on the backs of my hands in tiny beads. When Liz came in and found me like that, the look on her face made me realize how stupid I'd been. She called an ambulance and helped me to the bathroom. I leant over, hacking chunks of red shit into the sink. My knees shook and my arms juddered, and Liz held me and cried into my neck, repeating one word over and over again. Stupid, stupid, stupid. My throat burned and my chest ached with the effort of coughing. I just wanted it to be over, but I couldn't stop. And then I felt something big give way inside of me and my legs buckled. There was something in there, something I had dislodged into the bottom of my pipes that was so big it was closing them off. I could hear the constricted air whistling in my throat. It didn't sound like it could be coming from me. It didn't even sound like a noise a human could make. I thumped at my chest and coughed harder still, despite how much it hurt. The thing inside me lurched. And now I couldn't breathe at all. The coughing barely made any sound, just a wet squelching as my esophagus convulsed. I looked up at the mirror and my eyes were weeping and cracked and there was blood all around my mouth dripping off my swollen lips. My face was turning blue and no matter how hard I thumped at my chest, I couldn't dislodge the thing that was blocking it. I knew I was going to die. This was it. I was going to suffocate right here in my own bathroom. I couldn't bear to look at Liz's face. I shoved her off and she crumbled off into a corner, sobbing. And with one final effort, I let go with my arms and dropped my chest onto the edge of the sink with all my weight. There was a crack as my breastbone hit the porcelain. And I breathed in air. I opened my eyes. I was staring into the sink. Inches away from my face, there was a massive tissue about the size of my fist. It looked like a ball of worms cocooned in bloody phlegm. And it was moving, writhing. The worms wriggled and stretched free of the sticky pink saliva, and underneath all the gore, they were shiny and black. They whipped and flexed as if searching for something. I had the sense that this wasn't a collection of individual worms, but one organism. And as I stood there, transfixed my forehead on the ledge at the back of the sink, I could have sworn they were reaching towards me, towards my mouth. I had no strength left to resist. I was powerless to stop them forcing themselves between my lips, but thank God for Liz. She wrenched me away from the sink and she attacked the mass with the end of a toothbrush until it slithered down the plug hole. She told me later that she poured drain cleaner down every plug hole in the house. But I wasn't there to see that part. Shortly after the thing had been flushed, the ambulance arrived. I was rushed to hospital by a bunch of business-like paramedics. As soon as I arrived, I was taken for an exploratory x-ray. And the mass that had appeared in my lungs before, the tumor 
it was gone. It was impossible, the doctors said, for someone to cough out their own tumour, and when I suggested that maybe it wasn't a tumour, they frowned and whispered to each other. I hadn't had a biopsy yet, so they hadn't had a chance to analyse the tissue. Over the following weeks, I was subjected to a host of tests, but they found nothing and I was given a clean bill of health. My suggestion that it could have been an organism was met with a barely muted amusement. There is no known parasite that could grow to that size in a person's lung, certainly not without being detected and probably not without killing them. My best guess at what had happened? I smoked it out. Neither Dave nor his dealer ever got back to me. A month later, they found Dave floating in the local reservoir. They said it looked like he'd been hollowed out from the inside. I still don't smoke. And I don't drink tap water, either. In our final tale, we meet Emma, who's a little weirded out by the odd girl, Chasey, who started at her high school. The new girl seems to show up everywhere that Emma is, to an unsettling degree. When Chasey shows up at Emma's birthday party, there's only one thing for it, getting to know her. But in this tale, shared with us by author Jessica Charlet, Chasey reveals some philosophies and proclivities that Emma's never considered herself. Performing this tale are Addison Peacock, Jessica McAvoy, Nicole Goodnight, and Mike Delgadio. So, sure, be nice to the new girl, but maybe decide whether she's really good company to be seen in, or safe company, anyway. At least when she says things like, death is only for the living. Your dead grandmother doesn't give a shit that she's dead. You do. These were the words Tracy told me when I came back to school after the funeral. That was when I decided I did not like the new girl. While the other girls and teachers showered me with flowers and cards, Tracy sat at the back of the room, her eyebrow arched. The pretentious smirk that I would later recognize to be her trademark mocking me. I hated her. Chasey was an odd person. It's a weird thing to say, but she was kind of what you'd expect from someone whose name is most often associated with a porn star. She showed up one day, our school uniform altered into her own interpretation of couture. There was the green plaid skirt and white button-up top we were all wearing, but her skirt was littered with safety pins and her right breast was covered with band pins I recognized from movies about drug-riddled anarchist teens. Her shirt was unbuttoned almost to the point of scandal, and her long black hair was tied into a messy knot at the top of her head. 
She had rings in her nostril and septum, a bar in her eyebrow, and her ears were filled with studs, coops, and barbells. Her eyelids were heavy with thick black liner and dark purple shadow. Her thin lips painted a deep matte red. Her black messenger bag was covered in patches of devils, horned creatures, and bones the largest of which was the skeleton of Siamese twins conjoined at the head. Her dark eyes surveyed the room and landed on the empty desk beside me. My stomach twisted as she approached, her dark confidence intimidating. She sat down and looked at me. I blushed as I realized I had been staring. Chasey winked and I looked away quickly my cheeks burning. From that moment forward, no matter how much I tried to avoid her, Chasey would appear everywhere. I was the president of the philosophy club, and she was our newest member. I was one of the editors for the school newspaper, and she became one of our photographers. She would eat lunch at the table next to me and my friends, She'd show up at parties and raise an eyebrow at me, smirking as if she had something on me. As if she knew something about me no one else knew. My 15th birthday was in the summer. I invited everyone from my class to a pool party at my place. Unsurprisingly, Chasey was there. While everyone else played pool games and lounged around, Chasey stood in the corner talking to my father as he grilled hot dogs and hamburgers. We all sported colorful bikinis, while Chasey wore ripped-up jeans and a black band shirt. It had a skeleton wearing a Pope costume, its tongue shooting from its mouth as it wildly brandished a cross. I watched her nod as my father excitedly told her about his new film project. Her eyes locked on mine, and she smirked, one eyebrow raised. I looked away, engrossing myself once again in our game of volleyball. As night came, most girls went home, but a few stayed. We watched a movie and did our nails, talked about boys and school and how Miss Kayser really needed a good fuck. Chasey was there, sitting in the corner. I watched her sip her soda and pop a cheese curl in her mouth. She winked at me, and I blushed. My best friend Rachel seemed to notice as she looked in the direction I had been staring. She gave Chasey a smile, her voice soaked in false nicety. What about you, Chasey? I bet a girl like you gets a lot of dick. (laughs) The others erupted in laughter. Chasey smiled coolly in response, unirritated by the attention. Dick isn't really my thing. The giggling stopped abruptly, and the room grew silent with discomfort. I'm going to bed. I stood so suddenly the remote sitting on my lap fell to the floor. Everyone stared at me. What? But it's still early. Yeah, I know. I just... I'm beat. You guys can crash here or in one of the guest rooms. They looked at me silently, waiting for more. So I added... I got a lot of sun today. As if that explained it. 
Rachel shrugged and put in another DVD as I quickly walked to my room. I was reading in bed when my door opened about an hour later. Chasey stuck her head in. So, you're still awake. I shrugged, resting the book on the nightstand. Can I come in? She pushed the door fully open and entered before I could reply. She was wearing nothing but a pair of dark blue underwear and the t-shirt she had been in earlier. I sat there, in silence, as Chasey walked around my room, examining everything on the walls and furniture with intense concentration. The silence between us would be periodically interrupted with a question. She pointed to a photo. Who's that? My uncle. She picked up a small trophy, my third place award for the junior bass fishing tournament I was in when I was seven. She turned, a huge smile on her face as she angled it towards me. I blushed and pulled the blanket around me. I I used to be really into fishing. (laughs) That's adorable. A lightning bolt of heat shot through my stomach. My body felt like it was burning from the inside out. Chasey stopped at my bookcase. Oh, shit. She pulled out one of my board games. She turned and presented a Ouija board. I tried to sink further into my bed without success. Oh, I was also really into ghosts and stuff when I was a kid. So there was a younger version of yourself that was super into demons and fishing. I shrugged. That's amazing. She sat down on the carpeted floor and lifted the box, allowing the bottom to fall with a loud sucking noise. She took out the board. Holy shit, real wood. Man, this is fucking fancy. Her nose was barely an inch away from the black, intricate designs around the edges. She looked up and raised her eyebrow. Aren't you gonna join me? I swallowed and slid out from under the covers, very self-conscious of my baggy pink pajama pants. I groaned internally as I remembered that they were even covered in little hearts. I wished I had been wearing something more mature, something sexier. I sat across from her, the board between us. Without a word, we both placed our fingers lightly on the planchette. Chasey straightened her back and shifted her shoulders. We call on you, spirits of old and new. Tell us your secrets. She swayed side to side as she hummed a static tone as if meditating. I watched, mesmerized, and then she stopped, her eyes shooting open as the planchette slid easily over the wooden surface, stopping at the hello, carefully printed in the bottom left-hand corner. We locked eyes, my heart thumping in my chest. Chasey smiled wickedly at me. You're fucking with me. (laughs) 
Embarrassment and anger grew inside of me. I stood awkwardly and sat on my bed. Oh, Emma, I'm sorry. You were just so into it. Chasey stood and hopped onto the bed with me. Heat rushed through my abdomen as she scooted towards me, smiling. I was suddenly aware of a fresh scent I couldn't identify, filling my nostrils and sending a slight shiver down my spine. You love that shit, don't you? What do you mean? All that dark shit. Voodoo, seances, summoning, demons. I waved my hand around my head, non-verbally indicating the etc. <laughs> Chasey laughed and leaned against the wall, <laughs> stretching her legs out in front of her. I guess you could say that. She looked at me, her face fallen, filled with a sudden and intense interest. I waited for her to say something. To do something. What? Can I ask you a question? Um, I guess so. Do I have to answer? She laughed. <laughs> then grew serious again. Emma. She leaned closer. My heart quickened. Yeah? How do you want to die? What? How do you want to die? There was no hint of a joke or even a smile on her face. I answered with a shrug. Um, I don't know. She leaned back, thoughtfully examining my face. You never think about your death? No, I, I have. I just... I don't know. She waited, watching me expectantly. I guess I want to die peacefully in my sleep. The edge of her lip lowered in disappointment, the skin between her eyebrows tightening. Isn't that what everyone wants? That's not how I want to go. How do you want to die? Her eyes glazed as she looked at a spot above my head. She seemed suddenly distant, removed. I want to die in a slasher film. I waited for additional details, but she was silent, her eyes still absently locked on the wall. Like, on the set? She looked back at me, her eyes sharpening back into focus. No, no, I mean, I want to be chased through the woods by a serial killer. A butcherer of men. I pulled away, suddenly aware of how close her face was to mine, and rested my back against the firm headboard. Chasey took this as an invitation to adjust her sitting position as well crossing her legs in front of her as she turned to face me. She settled, and I tried to ignore that her knees were now resting against mine. She leaned in, her face filled with urgency. 
Dying is the last thing you will ever do. Why would you want to die in your sleep? I want to be aware of my death. I don't want to be numb to it. In shock, like if you freeze or drown. I want to be in the moment for as long as possible. If I'm being chased by a crazed lunatic, my adrenaline will be heightened. I will be more focused than I have ever been in my life. Every second will stretch into hours. There I will remain for an eternity, trapped in my own demise. I will be in the moment, no longer existing outside of it. My thoughts won't be in the past, the life I've led, my regrets and unfilled wishes. I'll be there and nowhere else, running, surviving until I am nothing but a memory. My mind and thoughts vanished forever. I will be no more. But before that, I will be aware of my death in a way most people will never be aware of anything in their entire lives. I will be forced to savor every last second of the last moments of my life. Chasey stopped. She was breathing hard at this point, her face only inches from mine. I swallowed and stared at her, unsure of what to say. And then she closed the space between our lips. My mind went blank. Her lips were so soft, her scent so delicious. She opened her lips slightly, pushing mine apart, and her tongue gently coaxed mine to join. Her mouth never leaving mine, she pushed me down into the bed, one hand at the base of my skull, the other on my shoulder. She dropped her body onto mine, her breasts pressing into my much smaller ones. I was jarringly aware of my inexperience, my small chest, my slight stomach rolls. And then she kissed harder, and all those thoughts dissipated as I lost myself in the moment. I awoke, my head resting on Chasey's naked chest. I let my head rise and fall with her breaths. The sun shone through the thin crack of my closed curtains, illuminating my bedroom wall in front of me. A wall so familiar to me, it contrasted sharply against the new body beneath mine, unknown yet with a weight of intimacy that warmed my body from the spine outward. I sighed, forcing myself to remain still. I didn't want to wake her. I didn't want her to leave. I wanted this moment to last forever. But of course, every moment has to end. My bedroom door opened behind me and I sat bolt upright, covering my exposed breasts. Rachel stood in the doorway, her face frozen in shock. Chasey groaned and shifted beside me. She noticed Rachel and lifted herself onto her arm, blinking groggily. Mm. Morning, Rach. Rachel was staring at Chasey, unable to move her eyes away from her nudity. 
Finally, her eyes moved to mine. We stared at each other. I couldn't breathe. I couldn't move. I couldn't react. I have to go home. She stepped back, closing the door behind her. I sat there, my body trembling. Chasey straightened, watching me with concern. But I couldn't look at her. Shame poured from the top of my head down, filling my heart and stomach with a disgusting sourness like yellow bile. Chasey rested her hand on my back. Are you okay, Emma? Her voice was so innocent, so unaffected by what just occurred. I forced my face to turn towards her, to meet her eyes. Chasey leaned in, kissed my lips lightly. I flew from the bed and ran to my dresser, grabbing a bra, shirts and jeans falling to the floor beside me in my haste. Chasey stood from the bed. Emma? Her voice sounded afraid, something I had never heard from her before. I whipped around, holding loose clothing close to my chest, hot, angry tears filling my eyes. Get out! Emma, out! I pointed to the door with my free hand. She picked up her shirt and panties from the floor and left. Her head hung in defeat. Months passed, and I saw Chasey less and less. Rachel never told anyone about what she saw, and we never discussed it. But I made sure to distance myself as much as possible from Chasey, and she seemed to get the message. When school started up again, she quit the newspaper and never showed up to another meeting of the philosophy club. Yet, when I did see her, When I'd pass her in the hall or watch her give a presentation in class, my body would ache for her. I'd fall asleep at night thinking of her soft kisses, thinking about how she tasted, how her body felt on top of mine, my hands running across her skin. I wanted to take back rejecting her. I wish I hadn't kicked her out of my room. that I hadn't cared what Rachel saw. I wish I had turned back towards her and pulled her body to mine, falling back asleep with her warmth in my arms. One morning I saw her as I was walking to the restroom during class. She was at her locker, scavenging the mess inside for something. I walked to her, standing above the open locker, listening to her mumble in frustration. My heart melted in my chest as she swore at a misplaced tampon floating around textbooks and newspapers. There you are. She pulled it to her chest and shut the door with a metallic clang. She jumped as she noticed me beside her. Her cheeks paled at the sight of me. I gave her a small smile. Hey, Chasey. Chasey narrowed her eyes and stood, turning on her heel. (laughs) I watched her walk down the hall, her steps heavy and with purpose. 
my heart stung with the pain I knew I had caused her. The pain I now felt. A few days later, I wrote Chasey an apology note and slipped it into her locker through the slats in the door, asking her to text me so we could chat about it. About us. Chasey never texted. I left a few more notes and even tried texting her, but I never got a response. Until one day, when I opened my locker, and a black card fell out onto the dusty linoleum floor. I picked it up. My name was written in red ink on the front in Chasey's handwriting. My heart fluttered, and I shoved my books into my locker so my hands would be free to peel it open. It was an invitation. Her birthday was October 22nd, the fact I hadn't known previously, and she was hosting a Halloween-themed party. This was it. This was my chance. (laughs) I squealed in delight to the concern of my neighbors. I bit my lip, trying to keep my excitement under control. My smile stretched wide despite my efforts, a tang of copper touching my tongue as my tooth cut into the soft, delicate flesh of my lip. The address on the invitation took us to an old, warped house, far from the neat and uniform subdivisions me and my friends live in. My dad eyed the disheveled slate roof and drooping porch of the one-story home with concern. Mm. Who's this friend again? Chasey. You met her at my birthday? She was the only one who talked to you? Oh, the little goth girl. Yeah, 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 I remember. She was... Yeah, I have the house again. Nice. I rolled my eyes. Dad, stop being a snob. I'm not being a snob. I know not everyone has the same money we do. I just didn't expect her home to be so... run down. Ugh. I opened the door to leave. Hey, hey! I turned and gave him a quick hug. Love you, kiddo. I'll pick you up tomorrow morning. Thanks, Dad. I gave him a peck on the cheek and shot from the seat. Be good. I pulled at the short skirt of my crushed velvet dress. It had taken me forever to pick a costume. I wanted something mature and sexy without being too slutty. I decided to go as a witch. My deep purple dress was fitted, but not too tight, with a low neckline that complemented the large metal cross that hung around my neck. I wore the strapless bra I had bought for my cousin's wedding the year before, the stiff, tight, padded cups giving me undeserved cleavage. To complete the ensemble, I wore a black pointed hat and carried an old wooden broom I had found in the attic. My dad's car idled in the rocky driveway as I walked to the front door, my heart hammering in my chest. I lifted my hand to knock, but it swung open before I could, revealing Chasey, dressed as Drew Barrymore from Scream. (laughs) Her eyes drifted to my cleavage, and she looked up at me, smiling wickedly, her eyebrow arched. I felt warm 
my breath taken away by the familiar expression I hadn't seen in months. Come on in. I turned and gave my dad a final wave. I stepped inside and heard the heavy vehicles slowly pull away. The house was dark, illuminated only by the candles that covered every surface. I leaned my broom against the wall. Jesus, you're gonna burn your house down. This isn't my house. It's not? (laughs) Of course not. You really think I live in a shithole like this? No, I live in a nice little suburban McMansion just like you. But I wanted someplace special for my birthday. Chasey walked through a doorway and I followed her into the kitchen. She grabbed a tall boy from the counter and passed it to me. Drink up. I pulled the tab, piercing the thin metal with a sharp hiss and looked around. Where is everyone else? Oh, the guest of honor should be here soon. Aren't you the guest of honor? Chasey looked up at me and stuck her tongue out flirtatiously. I wanted to kiss her. I wanted to hug her, bring her close to me, press my body into hers and kiss her. But instead, I brought the warm beer to my mouth and drank. I felt uncomfortable with her. I still longed for her. As she walked in front of me back to the living room, I had to resist the urge to reach out and touch her. She sat on the couch and I sat beside her, giving ample space between us, forcing myself not to lean towards her, to smell her, to lose myself in her. We sat there in stiff silence until she turned to me quite abruptly, her eyes peering into mine with a surprising softness. I could see a genuine earnestness beneath the cool pool of her irises. Thank you. For what? For coming. Of course. Thanks for inviting me. I I was worried you never wanted to see me again. The air shimmered in the sea of flames surrounding us, a dull heat radiating from the candles, emphasizing the heat growing in my body. Chasey leaned in and kissed me. It was as soft and sweet as I remembered. I pushed my mouth into hers, relishing the warmth as I placed my hand on her thigh. I parted my lips, preparing to deepen the kiss. She tore away, looking toward the door. Chasey turned to me, eyes wide. Run. Huh? Chasey jumped up from the couch, pulling my arm and leading me quickly back into the kitchen. My beard fell from my startled grasp, a wet stain growing on the carpet behind us. I tried to fight against her grip. Chasey, what the fuck? Run! I looked back in time to see the head of an axe being pulled from the split wood of the front door. My broom fell with the force, landing onto a wall of candles. What the fuck? Chasey pulled again at my arm, 
and this time my body obeyed without resistance. We ran across the kitchen to the back door, which Chasey threw open. She pulled me into the cool night air. Chasey and I were running across the yard now, running towards a line of trees. I looked over my shoulder and saw the large, shadowy figure of a man fill the open doorway we had just left, an axe hanging from his hand. I turned forward, quickening my pace. What the fuck? What the fuck? We burrowed deeper into the woods. I stumbled on a tree root and Chasey pulled me to her. We have to keep going. She started running again, her hand tight around my own. Chasey, what did you do? Tears were beginning to flow down my cheeks. My entire body felt cold, not by the air, but by fear. Instead of answering, she pulled harder, pounding her feet against the cold autumn ground, my body following blindly. My breath was starting to catch in my throat with the effort of running. My gasps for air harshly mixing with fear, combining as well as water and oil, creating a battle of will in my lungs. I tried to scream and cough at the same time, but instead sputtered out gibbered sobs. Come on, it's just up here. I looked to see her dragging me to an old dilapidated shed. Chasey dropped my arm as she thrust the door open. She pushed me inside as she looked over her shoulder. Satisfied, she followed me, closing the door behind her. I stood there, shaking, as she examined the old rotten tools along the wall. She grabbed a hammer and quickly weighed it in her hand. What are you doing? What is going on? She inhaled deeply before calmly looking at me and answering. I told you, this is how I want to go. At 16? I placed my hand on my chest, feeling my heart pounding against my ribcage as I took another sharp inhale of breath. I'm ready. You're insane. Keep it down. Do you want him to find us? I looked to a small window set in the wall, too dirty to see through. Who is he? My breathing was starting to become more manageable as the tears began to dry. Instinct rushed through my blood, taking over my fear with a determination I didn't recognize. I swallowed and steadied myself, sniffling back the snot that dripped from my nostril and looking at Chasey. His name is Jack. I found him on... on a site... I pulled my phone out of my pocket and clicked on the picture of my dad on the home screen. This is so fucked up. Even for you. Glared incredulously at Chasey's back as she peered through the window, hammer in hand. Emma? Dad, Dad, you need to come quick. There's a guy and he has an axe. What? Slow down, honey. What are you doing? Chasey grabbed my phone and threw it to the ground. 
I lunged for it as the hammer she held landed with a crunch that made my stomach heave violently. She turned and grabbed me by the hair. My head throbbed with the pressure. I thought you loved me. That doesn't mean I want to die for you. Chasey brought her face to mine. That's exactly what it means. Fuck you. I shoved her away from me and into the shed door. My hair tore from my scalp with a painful rip. Chasey cried out as her shoulder bounced against the door with a loud shudder that echoed through the woods. I grabbed my destroyed phone, angry tears in my eyes. But it was useless. It shattered screen permanently flat. Well, it's too late now. Chasey watched me, her hand rubbing her sore shoulder. I looked up, my breathing clipped with pure hatred. A snarl escaped from my throat. It was a noise I didn't recognize. One of anger, of betrayal, of bloodlust. I straightened. No, it's not. I threw my arm around her neck as I kicked the thin shed door open. Chasey twisted desperately in my grasp. I gripped tighter. The shadowy figure of a large man stepped towards us, his features dark. The woods were barely illuminated by the stars above the dense treetops, but I could tell he was hungry. Hungry to feel our bodies break beneath him. Hungry for the sounds of bones cracking, blood gurgling, our childish screams swallowed by pain and desperation and death. Chasey feebly tried to push herself away from me. I moved to her ear, my lips brushing against her skin. Isn't this what you wanted? Isn't this what you fucking wanted? Jack approached us. Chasey screamed, kicking and hitting me wildly. I threw her onto the forest floor, slamming my foot as hard as possible into her lower back. Happy birthday, bitch. Chasey tried to scramble away, her hands dragging through dead leaves, loose dirt, and bugs. I watched as Jack's arms rose above his head and fell. The head of the axe shone in non-existent light, as if it were illuminated by some holy source separate from the reality around us. The axe swung downwards, taking what felt like hours to land with a bloody thunk as it dug into Chasey's leg. Her screams followed me as I jogged back to the house. The windows glowed orange with the fire growing inside. In only a few minutes, I was on the road, my head buzzing, an inferno behind me. I bent forward, resting my hands on my knees as I vomited the little bit of bud light I had drank less than an hour beforehand. Two headlights approached me, and I squinted up into them. The car stopped, and a figure stepped out. father's voice filled with shock and concern 
shrouded me like an old blanket. I ran to him, falling into his arms as I started sobbing uncontrollably. I looked up at his kind face, illuminated from one side by the cool white of his car's headlights, and from the other by the burning house. He looked like God and the devil, joined as one. An angel of mercy, a demon of hate. I collapsed as the image faded into black. The police asked me a lot of questions. I told them it was Chasey's birthday party, that the weird girl at school didn't have any friends, that she invited me and I went to be nice, that a man came and chased us with an axe, that I lost Chasey, that I didn't know what happened to her, that I called my dad, that I dropped my phone in the woods, that I didn't know how I had gotten away, that I had just ran. They told me the man who attacked us was named Jack Fagerman. I nodded as their words turned into shapeless droning in my ear. I should have been killed. I realize now that it would have made no difference. The girl I was when I showed up that night is dead she will never exist again. Now, I am something new. Something shapeless. A confused, lost soul that travels aimlessly. No longer a child, but not a woman. A thing filled with trauma from a night I will never forget. A night that will never be washed from my mind. A night that has forever marked me. Chasey was right. Death is only for the living. Yet I've come so close to death that my life will never be blemish-free again. It is stained with the dark, rust-red of death and decay. I've not only lost my innocence, but any semblance of humanity. The police still haven't caught Jack Fagerman, yet I know where to find him. The police never even asked that. They listened to me recite the final girl's epilogue, then closed my file and hid it in the back of an evidence box to grow dusty. They had no expectation that a sheltered teenager would know anything of real value. I'm going back. I'm going to find Jack and finish what we started. Death is only for the living, and I'm still alive, for now.
The spells are wearing off for now, but the magic will linger. The shop will be open again next week with more spells to enchant you. Visit thenosleeppodcast.com for show notes and more details about the people who bring you this production. And on their behalf, we thank you for being a supportive, sleepless member. This audio production is copyright 2020 by Creative Reason Media Inc. All rights reserved. The copyrights for each story are held by the respective authors. No duplication or reproduction of this audio program is permitted without the written consent of Creative Reason Media Inc.